Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Summitry Project. You can see our activity at the globalsummitryproject.com website. You will note there that we have the e-journal, Global Summitry. We have the blog, Rising Brixham, and we also have a new, relatively new, YouTube channel, which is concerned with all matters related to the Global Summitry Project. Today, I'm pleased to invite into the virtual studio Nick Bisley, and this is in the Shaking Global Order series. It's the particular podcast is Series 2, Episode 3, and my time with uh, Nick is concerned with uh, the changing order in Asia, and in particular, a focus on, in Australia. Nick, by the way, is the head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, and is also a professor of international relations at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. His research and teaching expertise is in the Asia international relations area, great power politics, and Australian foreign and defense policy. Nick is also an author of a number of works on international relations, including 21st Century World Politics, which is in its second edition at Palgrave, Great Powers in the Changing International Order. So, let's uh, invite Nick into the studio, and away we go. So it's a great pleasure to welcome back uh, my good friend Nick Bisley uh, from La Trobe. And how are you, Nick? I'm good, Alan. How are you doing? Good. So uh, you know this uh, this session with you, which I, I was quite excited to have, um, is all about the changing order in Asia, with, with a particular emphasis, obviously, uh, on Australia. Uh, so let me uh, let me start with this, Kishore Mubani. Uh, in January, in an article uh, on the Quad, that is uh, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, and before the leaders' uh, virtual Quad gathering with President Biden, which was March 12th, uh, suggested this about the Quad. He said, Australia, India, Japan, and the United States have perfectly legitimate concerns about China. It will be uncomfortable living with a more powerful China. First, the four countries have very different geopolitical interests and vulnerabilities. And second, and more fundamentally, uh, they are in the wrong game. The big strategic game in Asia isn't military, but economic. Isn't Kishore right? <laughs> yeah. Look, to a degree, I think he is, you know, um, in one sense. Um, certainly, the fact, I think, that the Quad have um, really different geopolitical interests. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And that's something that I think people don't spend enough time on looking at, you know, what exactly are the shared geopolitical threats right. that unite all four of these beyond a, beyond a sort of high-level discomfort about Asia, uh, sorry, about China and Asia. Um, but I think that, you know, what, what he's getting at is that I think the, 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 the fundamental reality that we're in an era of geoeconomics um, in which the competition that's, that is in place and it's been around for I mean, the competition has been playing for some time um is not just about you know kind of spheres of influence and and the like in fact it's much less about that 
and much more about um, kind of rules, standards, um, you know, and, and think about like the stuff that's made uh, the headlines recently, you know, around 5G, around Huawei, AI tech. Um, th- this is really the sort of kind of place where the competition is going to be most fierce. And I think where the US and, and its sort of fellow travelers and allies feel potentially, you know, mm-hmm. I think at, um, at some disadvantage. Uh, one area that, that I think is really interesting to look at um, is around digital currencies and around, you know, the systems around digital payments and online payments. And, you know, the COVID has accelerated this sense of we don't use money. I think I spent about 12 months without physical money in my, my pocket um, because everyone suddenly went to electronic contactless payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think what we've got is a realisation that, um, you know, the, the US and its allies have, have in China a country that's not just this authoritarian kind of rising conventional grey power, but mm-hmm. one that has got a sort of, uh, you know, an infrastructure for influence um, and a desire to, to sort of re-establish how things are done not in a kind of nasty um, or, or revolutionary way. You know, that's not, this isn't the Soviet Union looking to reorder the fundamental kind of structure of how societies are organised, but they're interested in, in being at the heart of how physically societies work. That's to say building the bridges, the gauges of the, the digital payments, establishing standards for how um, interaction occurs. And I think that's, that's where the competition is that it's has been in play for the longest, but also where I think realization in Canberra, in Washington, and elsewhere has only so the, the pennies only sort of dropped more recently. That that's a where it's at, and b they're at some considerable disadvantage. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the other the other thing that what I, I suspect was behind uh, Kishore's comments is also that what we see most visibly and I think is reflects a sort of mentality certainly in Canberra um, and I think also it was true under Trump less clear whether it's true under Biden is a dominance of security thinking that sort of the ge- the old-fashioned geopolitics is is really at the front of the mind mm-hmm. even though the reality of of what's at play in the region is a full spectrum set of issues so I think where um <clears throat> where in the past, I think the US and others have, have seen the unity of, well, not unity, but seen the way in which economic and political and strategic matters intersected. I think over the past four or five years, they've sort of broken apart and the security and the strategic have come to dominate and these other economic questions have sort of dropped down the priority list. Um, and I think that's where, and I think that's a real problem for, for certainly it's a problem in Canberra. Um, and it's I think it's a problem for, Biden, although my sense is if you look at what, say, Jake Sullivan and others are saying, you're beginning to see that I think they're grappling with that. Um, but there's some, I think there's some big domestic issues they've got with trying to, how they can reconcile those issues. Well, let's, you know, focus back onto the quad. And do you think that the Australian government really thinks that India is prepared to step up in a serious way? Uh, to the possible, you know, security matters that at least in some level were discussed at the Quad? Um, they hope they do. I think it's the old, you know, hope over experience, I think. Okay. Um, that, well, well, to be a little more serious, I think there's there's two sort of views in Canberra on, on this. There's mm-hmm. 
the sort of India booster view, which is to say the new India is, you know, don't, don't let your views of what India is be clouded by the old kind of Nehruvian past, that there, this is a new kind of real politique India that realises it's, it's not just realises, but is also kind of animated by a sense of geopolitical purpose and it will come to the party. Um, and you, you see that that's a, a small but I think quite influential group. And then there are those who go, yeah, <laughs> yet, yet to be convinced, but um, but the reality is that's the this is the only game in town because if you if you're of the view that China needs to be contained or pushed back um, and that the sort of American centered order needs to be protected, reinforced, buttressed, the only way you can realistically tell yourself that's going to work is to get India involved because. Without India, the idea of Japan, Australia, in fact, you know, without India, the idea of containing China is, is fanciful. Even with India, to be perfectly honest, I think it's geopolitically and, and economically geopolitically. fanciful. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I think it's, it's a sort of hope over experience. Um, we've, there's a lot of path dependency in the way Australia has sort of positioned itself right now um, in that it's sort of lined up in this particular way, which means it 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 kind of has to it has to invest in the quad, it has to believe in India, it has to hope that that story works because the rest of it is not really plausible without it. I see. Well, so if but if Keyshore's right, and in, in you know the real game uh, in uh, in Asia, the Indo Pacific, Asia Pacific, however you want to describe it. Uh, where does it leave Australia? I looked at the trade numbers, and in 2018, 33% of Australia's exports went to China, whereas only 5% went to the United States. Now, I, 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 I acknowledge that, you know, Australia is a principal commodity provider uh, to China, but th those numbers are uh, enormous. Yeah, this is this is the bit that um, I think Australian political leaders can't quite figure their way around, um, and it's. I mean, I've been to many meetings where the security people say, "Kind of, you business interested, you've just got to learn to diversify. This is what all you have to do is just diversify your markets." And the business people and the university people were. And, and others kind of go, what, you know, what planet are you on? Do you understand how markets work? You know, this is not, you don't just go diversify. Um, <laughs> and there's been, there's been a bit of, it's interesting that the, the conservative right um, has been, uh, you know, taken, well, they've been sort of blowing trumpets recently about how the trade tensions and frictions and, ta and tariffs, non-tariff barriers that came in last year post um, the government sort of, going out on a limb um, about the investigation into to, to, oh, COVID-19, COVID yeah. yeah. Um, we did that on our own, which was just, you know, from a diplomatic point of view, just, you know, failed, diplomat failed diplomacy 101 is go out on your own finger pointing to your biggest customer. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they, and the Chinese were clever, you know, they, they identified a bunch of sectors that themselves were quite China-exposed, um, mm -hmm. but for which China could get alternative um, supply. So it's not going to buy Australian lobsters. It can get, get lobsters from, you know, from Thailand or from elsewhere. Um, 
and slapped them with these pretty major non-tariff barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some figures have come out now that a number of those sectors have been able to find alternative markets, but not, you know, not China's scale. But, but basically, because they haven't collapsed in a heap, uh, that the conservatives are going, aha, you know, diversification is possible. But the reality is, as a, for, for a country like Australia that depends on trade, to have the world's second biggest economy effectively kind of, yeah, can we just diversify out of it is, is bonkers. Um, which then raises the broader question, like what, how does Australia manage all of this? And I think up until about 2017, we sort of figured out how to do it, but it was always going to be a temporary story. You know, this is the, you know, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just not talk about the difficult things. We'll get on with business. We'll let the business stuff um, play itself out and that'll, that'll all work out. Um, since we decided to, for reasons that I've never fully understood in 2017, Australia went down this more kind of hardline position on China, being very critical in public um, without really, <laughs> without a, a long game um, that I could discern. Uh, it said, okay, well, we'll put the, the difficult political stuff on the surface um, and we'll just hope the, and we'll hope and pray that the economic stuff just kind of bumbles along. And of course, what we've seen is it hasn't. I think the one uh, the one kind of comfort I think that the government takes is that the majority of what we sell to China, they're going to keep buying. Um, that's that's their belief. So it's, it's iron ore. Okay. I mean, the vast majority of it's iron ore. Um, and the Australian iron ore story is essentially, you know, at the price and quality, there's no alternative. So you either buy more expensive Brazilian iron ore or you get inferior iron ore from India. But on balance, you know, all those bridges and roads and things that are being built, you know, they'll, they'll come back to us. That may be, um, but certainly if you ask someone who exports wine, if you ask someone who's in a university or another uh, education provider or a tourism provider um, mm-hmm. who is desperate to get back to life post-COVID um, about how they're going to de- live in a world in which the Chinese no longer buy your products, and all of them will look at you with, with a degree of kind of terror in their eyes. And I think there is genuinely not a sense of how Australia um, can plan to have a difficult, how it's going to manage having a difficult political relationship with China whilst having a functional economic relationship. And the bit I find weird is that we haven't looked at what Japan does. You know, Japan's been doing this for 15 years, has very difficult political relationship with China, but manages a very, actually quite a positive and productive economic relationship. Um, and I think maybe it's a question of scale that we can't do it because of scale. Maybe it's a question of what we trade means mm-hmm. that it's, it's that, that that's not a model, but um, I think there is, there is a sense that um, where, yeah, I, I think there's a genuine sense in Canberra that um, what we're seeing is the the victory, as I was saying earlier, of, a kind of strategic view of the world in which strategy matters, strategy and security matters more than economics. And you'll just have, and you, all of you people in business, higher ed and everywhere else are just going to have to figure it out. And that's, that's a slightly disconcerting. I can imagine, <laughs> particularly given that you come out of the university, the university sector, but you know, how, how has this government kind of thought through, or maybe it hasn't thought through, how to deal with kind of the wolf warrior diplomacy that uh, China has visited upon you, right? Okay, so so the, the wolf warrior diplomacy is a funny one because on the one hand, um, the, the 
China hawks, and they're totally ascendant in Canberra right now and have been for, okay. for a couple of years, um, okay. they, they almost like it because it's like grist in the mill, right? This is everything we told you about China, it's true, see? And this is sort of reinforcement that when they denounce us, when they finger point, when they um, do all these things, this is confirmation of everything we've said and that China can't be reasoned with and that it's a sort of, this, it's a country unto itself um, in this regard. And, you know, that's, so, so they see, you know, they say that's, that's the real face of Chinese power that you're seeing, a kind of hubristic, nationalistic country that doesn't care at all about what the rest of the world thinks. And this is why we need to take the steps that we're taking. So in, in some respects, um, they, you know, they, they, don't, they don't mind it. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, realistically, it, it, and he, he certainly has talked to some government officials who, who are of a more pragmatic disposition, and it's real head in the hand stuff because um, I, I think one of the biggest challenges Australia's got at the moment is we do not have a functional diplomatic relationship with Asia's most important country. Mm-hmm. I mean, which literally is dysfunctional. The mm-hmm. middle, even mid-level officials can't get meetings in Beijing. Um, you've got public denunciations on both sides, um, and you know, even if Australia wants to to continue to have a fairly, you know, sort of geopolitically security, very suspicious of China position, how how does it make sense to to I mean, on what planet? Does that mean you should have zero political interactions with your biggest customer, the region's most important power, and the world's second most important country? I mean, it just it flies in the, it flies in the face of kind of standard diplomatic practice where you want to give yourself maximum options and maximum flexibility. Um, and and so I think that where you know where we're at now is, I mean, it's, every year goes by and we keep saying now that the Australian relationship is at its worst. And it's like it just keeps getting worse. You know, there, there is, uh, I mean, I, I often joke that the lesson of 2016 was that there is no bottom, right? There's, 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 yeah, there's, there's no floor. There's, things can always get worse. Uh, and certainly 2020 showed us that. Uh, and at this point for Australia and China, um, it, 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 it it just keeps getting worse. You know, the, the, the relationship at various points, each side tries to make a little kind of gesture to reach out to the other. And it's just rebuffed both sides. There's been one on each side, Dan Tian, um, the new newish trade minister did a little kind of reach out, didn't go anywhere. Um, the ambassador here made a bit of a, an outreach to say, you know, but but yeah, the Chinese kind of said, well, if you take if you take everything back that you said and change your laws, then we, <laughs> then we might get our relationship back on 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 a steady track. Um, but it is really difficult to see um, the way in which this improves. Uh, and I've had you know, discussions with business people who are just like, is it going to get better? And I keep saying, I you know, no, I can't. I can't see this getting better with this. Certainly with this government, I don't. I can't see any improvement. Um, and even if it, even if we were to change governments um, in the coming election, if you were to get the ALP, so the Labor Party, um, you know, centre left group back in power, mm-hmm. I still don't. I don't see a lot of prospects for change. You know, there's a pretty hawkish group within the ALP. Um, and there's, I'm not sure if it's got much press outside Australia, but there's a, 
a group in the parliament that's bipartisan, so it's on both sides, and they refer to themselves as the Wolverines, um, and they're a, a bunch of pretty conservative, um, hairy-chested types who, who they put stickers on their doors. I'm not joking. There's a little Wolverine sticker that they put on their doors in their parliamentary offices uh, in which they, you know, they see themselves as standing up for, you know, human rights, fighting back against China, real kind of... Um, they view the whole thing through highly ideological set of lenses. Uh, and I suspect that were there to be an election tomorrow and the ALP to come in, you know, you'd probably see a slightly sh- slight shift in tone, but that's about it. Really? Um, I, I mean, so, so I mean, <clears throat> if the bilateral that you've described is as bleak as you think it is, and I suspect you're absolutely right, don't you think then at least, well, if not this government, the next government, would focus more in on the multilateral and in particular don't you think Australia the Australian government might you know again kind of following Kishore's dictum you know urge for example the United States to join back into the very important regional trade agreements we saw the RCEP uh, being finalized with uh, the uh, with China and 14 other countries but not the United States, and the TPP became the CPTPP without the United States. So in neither instances is the United States part of the game. So don't wouldn't Australia be very keen and, and public about urging um, uh, American participation? I think that they're, they're desperately keen for the Americans to get involved back in the multilateral trade business in Asia. They know, though, that they can't do that publicly. Um, they can't. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it with Trump. Forget it. You know, well, they, they, for sure. I mean, he they, yes. Yeah, and they really spent a lot of time um, <clears throat> figuring out how to manage Trump and doing a lot of, you know, um, yeah. We all. I mean, everyone did. But but Biden. I mean, I think they realized that Biden. The trade game is a complex one for Biden. The domestic politics of trade is really tricky for him. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And I think the moment we saw that. Um, the Blinken speech recently, you know, the, um, you know, basically American foreign policy for the middle class. Yes. Uh, and I was like, whoo, this is, that That basically means, C- I was CPTPP <laughs> just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, I thought, oh, that's, forget it, you know, because they'd, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd kept the chair just like at Passover, you need to keep the chair for Elijah. They'd kept the chair for, um, for, the Americans that were sitting there, and for, I, I think um, everyone who, who's a part of that, certainly the Australians, the Japanese, are very, you know, would, would cut off their right arm, I think, to get America back involved in that, but know that that's going to be a long game, it has to be a private game, and it has to be very much on, on America's terms. And I think given the complexity of the trade story for the US, plus the priorities are on um COVID and all of these things, I think it's, you know, that's... That's fair. But then, you know, there there you are. You have this virtual meeting, which is all about kind of geostrategic kinds of calculations, the quad. And, you know, so they go on a, a bit about that and they do, you know, kind of talk about some of the Asia issues. Um, uh, North Korea is one example and, and other, other questions. I, I don't know whether Australia raised the concerns about the uh, serious deterioration in the bilateral relationships, but 
you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, sitting and waiting for the Americans somehow doesn't strike me as a particularly um, uh, effective strategy. But you know, I, anyway, uh, I, th- I think it's I think it's just economically they kind of sit there and go, um, we the you know, we CTPP members have done all we can. Um, I see, and. Okay. I think the, I mean, I, I, I'm very confident that there's plenty going on behind the scenes that's quietly saying, you know, what can you do, USTR, getting that sort of stuff. But I think I think everyone agrees, everyone recognises that, you know, Dan Tien's standing up at, at some set-piece speech saying, please, Joe Biden, join the CTPPP is just not going to not going to move the ball, right? Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. So uh, how do you think or what do you think the Australian government uh, took uh, from the recent uh, Alaska summit, and that is the one between uh, the United States and uh, China in March, right? What, what's kind of the readout that, uh, that this government takes from that uh, uh, er, first uh, summit meeting between top you know, foreign policy officials between China and the United States? I, I think a, a weird mix of comfort and discontent. Yeah, dis- discombobulate, discombobulation. I mean, the comfort, oddly enough, is from the two things. One is, um, I think, uh, you know, Australia took the position against China during Trump in which it, it didn't or couldn't get the level of kind of big brother protection diplomatically uh, that you might have expected the US to provide an ally. Now it's getting that. So we can kind of, and, and importantly, what, what came out of that summit is a clear signal that the broad geopolitical position towards China that Trump, that the Trump people kind of charted is being kept by Biden mm. and that Biden's team <clears throat> have, have maintained that, which means the Australian position has got a good alignment and has then said, Hey, we will protect our allies. And very publicly, you know, the, the um, Jake Sullivan and Blinken have come out and said, you know, we, you you treat our allies like that, and we're going to do something about it. We, and so that's that that for Australia said, oh, good, you know, that's that's the 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 chart that we've that the path we've charted is now firmly in line with our big senior partner, and our senior partner is going to provide some kind of cover for us. I'm still not convinced that some of my colleagues think that as a result of that, the trade tensions between Australia and China are going to ease because essentially the, the story goes that. The Chinese want the sanctions, the Trump sanctions removed. for U.S.-China relations removed. Yes. And the Americans will say, well, we'll remove some of those if you be nice to our, our Australian friends and, and allow those seafood exporters, the barley, the beef, the wine back into China. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if it was a pure game of just quid pro quo, maybe, but I think the optics of it for China are not, um, particularly compelling for that, and I think they, you know, I, I, yeah. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a skeptic, but that's that's the sort of view. So on the one hand, I think from a certain certain school of thought in Canberra was this is really positive. Um, the other the other view, the discombobulation is this is the first relation, the, the first meeting between these two, and it publicly gets into yeah. <laughs> into name calling virtually within the first five minutes. Um, and what that means, I think, certainly my sense of it is, is that, you know, it's like strap yourselves in because if, if this is how it starts, okay, it can improve, but great, great power friction, 
in Asia is here to stay and we're all going to pay a price for it. The question is just how, how big that price will be. I see. Okay. Um, and how do you think, you know, as a result of, again, partly as a result of this meeting, uh, what's the readout that, again, the Camberg, this current uh, government has of, uh, you know, China's views and actions, uh, certainly in Asia? What, what, have they have they altered? Are they uh, concerned? Uh, what, what's Canberra thinking? So I, I think... Or is it? No, no, I think, I think it is. I mean, it, it has... Um, you know, it, it sees... And we, you, will, you will not see this in public stated like this, but I think the view is the dominant view in Canberra, it's not the only one, but it's the dominant view in Canberra, is that China is a highly destabilising force it is acting aggressively. It is acting in bad faith. It is seeking to influence, you know, the region significantly to interfere in states' affairs, um, and will not be will not be corralled by rules, norms, shame, or any of those tools. The only thing that China will understand is a unified strong position from the countries it's seeking to, to interfere. So that's, that's the sort of dominant view and that, and that um, the, the alternative, well, the alternative, but I mean, the other perspectives that exist are pretty marginalized. So that's to say, you know, China is a, a rising power, but it's got all sorts of limitations and constraints. It's got reasonable interests. Um, some of this is what great powers do. You have to manage these sorts of things. That's all, um, you know, and, and it's interesting to note that people, you know, in key positions, people have been squeezed out of, of influential roles. So this, the government set up um, this thing called the Australia China Foundation, which was designed to sort okay. of funnel money to promote study and relationships between Australia and Beijing. The, the fear being that, uh, China had been funneling money into the study of the Australia-China relationship to promote Beijing's views. And okay. uh, the guy who set it up in DFAT was deemed to not have sufficiently anti-China views and was pushed out. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really peculiar. So the, the atmosphere in, in Canberra, I mean, it, it, it's hard to overstate how um, anti-China the sentiment, the dominant sentiment in Canberra is at the moment. Um, so... And so what, and, and you've got, what you also tend to get is this funny story about China that you get, um, you, you see in some of the think tank reports coming out of the conservative side in the US, which is on the one hand, a depiction of China as, you know, powerful, maligned, but, you know, it's powerful, strategic, unified actor that is, you know, pernicious and corrupt and has to be pushed back on. But also at the same time, they get a story about how, flawed, weak, broken, corrupt. Um, you know, the whole thing is this house of cards that's about to collapse. And you're kind of like, well, which, hang on, which one of these two stories is, is right? Is, is, it, is it the, the story of a, a fragile great power that's about to collapse in on itself because of the contradictions of its system of internal governance? Or is it the 12-dimensional chess-playing geostrategic genius? <laughs> it's a sort of... So you've got... You, you've got those, both those strands sort of competing for... Well, not sort of playing through how... The government approaches China, but 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 more. I mean, but to, to get back to the core point, the, the basic view is that 
um, China is an ambitious power that is seeking to reorder Asia, mm -hmm. um, that this, the old status quo, um, which Australia loved and really dearly wishes would stay forever and ever and ever, um, is under threat. The old status quo being essentially American primacy, and and when with I mean I think that the thing with the thing that Australia really liked about the old status quo was not only that it was centered around America, but that the trade investment regime was pretty liberal, and that's what facilitated the positive Australian Australia China economic relationship, and the geopolitical tensions have kind of broken that up, um, and. You know, I think, and Australia hasn't quite worked out the economic side of it to, to go back to where we were earlier, um, but is so committed to protecting the old or to try to retain in some respects the old way of doing things, um, which it sees China as, des you know, as, as clearly trying to overturn, um, that it's prepared to pay some economic price for that. But, but what's interesting is, you know, others, other allies or other uh, yeah, other allies in Asia aren't having to play that game. You know, Japan's not having to play that yeah. game. Korea's not having to play that game. Indonesia, uh, I know less about uh, India, and obviously India has kind of strange views about trade in the first instance. But, but, but you know, close allies of Australia don't seem to be... Um, uh, of that view, so so shouldn't Australia? I don't know. Shouldn't Australia be thinking much more about its its interaction with its allies? Uh, it you know, yeah. Just like, like I was saying earlier, I find it puzzling that Australia has opted to go down the path it's gone down, which is one okay. of such public, um, a political diplomatic kind of um, disengagement or, or, or hostility towards China. I mean, it, okay. you, you know, you could have, you know, there are other ways of, of managing the balancing act that frankly, mm -hmm. as you said, yep. pretty much every country in the region has got in one way or another, you know, right. it's got a, I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of a country that doesn't have a, an asymmetric economic relationship with China. Um, and look one, at the ASEAN. I mean, it yeah. clearly has, you know, and it's a, it's become a significant player in the uh, uh, Asia Pacific economy, you know, kind of geo-economic world, I mean, clearly they're not choosing to go down the pathway that Australia has chosen. Yeah, and, and I, I wonder whether it's just you know it's all the realist or it's, it's the old sort of geography story, which is Australia is has a luxury of being able to take the path it's got. Okay, which is it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make a great deal of sense, but because of where we are we can take a position that that say Korea or Japan can't because of the physical, just the, the physical proximity. Um, but it's still that, you know, New Zealand's got that times 10 and they've gone down a really different path from us. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 view, the view in Canberra, the dominant view in Canberra is one that, that China's basically, you know, remote controlling New Zealand and there are a bunch of quislings. <laughs> I mean, and the, th the other thing, that's quite disturbing, to be honest, is the way in which it, it, if you don't argue in support of or to some degree, you know, take the hawker position, it is assumed that you are somehow in the back in the pay of, of China. Yeah. So you're and soft on China. And, and you're, you're a panda hugger. Um, anyone who comes out of a university who says anything along mm -hmm. the lines of we need to be pragmatic. Oh, well, you're just in the back pocket. You're just, you're just seeing the China, you're seeing from the Beijing song sheet. 
uh, and it's it's and it, and it gets often gets quite ad hominem and really pretty pretty bleak. And a few a few of us are trying to work out how we can try to intervene in the public debate about it because it's so polarized. Um, mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. that, that's that, that's another matter. But yeah, the, the, on, on the diplomacy, it is puzzling to me, and I can't quite work out exactly why beyond the beyond a sort of simple explanation of kind of bureaucratic politics and leadership that you've got a particular configuration of of political elites who for reasons um either of their own sort of sense as to how things work so we're kind of you've got key people in defense foreign affairs the intelligence agencies that have a very geopolitical logic mm-hmm. the old um i mean the interesting thing is where the camera consensus if you like used to be which was very multilateral, very right. sort of institutional, international rules, um, instinct. If there was never, if there was ever an issue, the instinct was to look at it through a multilateral lens and say, okay, let's say, I mean, let's say COVID. It's like, right, where's, let's get a group of countries together and do right. things. Whereas right. now it's a, it's a, that, that, that sort of multilateral instinct is, is very gone, is gone, well and truly. Trade and economic interests are subordinated to to um, the geostrategic, uh, and China is seen as, and through that lens, China is seen as a, a very significant threat. And I think, I think part of it is probably also um, being accentuated by the very visible ways in which the PRC or, or, or PRC related actors have tried to influence Australia. So, right, right. you saw these things occur a few years ago where. Essentially, what you had was a number of very wealthy PRC nationals in Australia, sort of throwing money around, trying to influence people, often trying to trying to please people back in China. Um, and this was interpreted as, you know, the remote control, you know, the the the, the tentacles of the the CCP. Um, and I think all of these things together have, you know, c- created this sentiment. Uh, this way of viewing China as a as a profound threat that's that will that requires um, the country to effectively have to pay some economic take some economic pain mm-hmm. to push back on this. Where you know you whereas you know if you look at say Korea or, or Japan, you haven't had that sense of domestic interference. Yeah. yeah, and like even though you know I have no doubt that stuff will be going on in those countries because that's what that's what major sure. powers do. You know, this happens everywhere. Sure. Um, but yeah, it is a very um, you know, it's quite a disconcerting time to be studying, working on these issues um, because it is. So so as a, a kind of last comment, the Australia of APEC is gone. I mean, because yeah. you, Australia was formative in creating that institution, which clearly sought a, you know, a significant multilateral um, uh, scope, right? Included Russia, included China. United States and many uh, many uh, countries, including some in Latin America as well as in in the Asia Pacific. So I take it that that world, at least for now, is gone uh, yeah. with respect well to Australia. Well and truly, yeah, I think it's it, it's not not gone forever. Um, there's still, you know, out, out in the in the um, ecosystem, they're out there, but they're uh, you know not they're not the dominant species by a long stretch, uh, and I think. For so long as that security geopolitical mindset prevails, one that sees a hierarchy, that mm-hmm. you have to get the security story right 
first and and that doesn't see i mean if we want to go back to where we started with kishore yeah. it doesn't see the kind of fundamental unity of the economic and the strategic then we've got you know the, then i think the the that sort of liberal logic that liberal and institutional logic that that was behind moves towards things like apec and open regionalism that stuff mm-hmm. will will not get to the surface will not be um uh influential in the way can reviews things so and you know as i said i'm fairly pessimistic at the moment looking out that that you know certainly under the current coalition government that's not going to change at all mm-hmm. but even were there to be a change of government i i think that mood in canberra is pretty solidly cemented in for the next little bit hmm. well i want to thank you nick for uh taking us through this it's really fascinating and uh, striking in parts where you know, the, the world that we understood of Australia, you know, let's say 10 years ago, clearly isn't the Australia uh, that we see today and may see again or continue to see for the next while. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's interesting to watch the evolution of it in one sense. And as, as you know, scholars of it, you and I, it's kind of an, it's a very interesting process to look at how it works <laughs> out. I think to be, to be a citizen in the country, it's slightly disconcerting, particularly as my, you know, my own personal kind of instincts are much more institutional and multilateral. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think at the moment, it's um, the wind is blowing in one direction. 